Welcome to So You Want to Be a Leader. Really? The Defy Expectations podcast. I'm Vicky Hampson. And I'm Helen Honeyset. And we're here to explore the highs and lows of leadership today with our guests. And help you navigate the complexity of being a leader from every aspect, from the sublime to the completely ridiculous and everything that exists in between. This week's guest is Victoria Peltier, who is overcome adversity and trauma at a really early age to build huge amounts of resilience, a trait that has remained with her throughout her life and has helped Victoria excel as a corporate exec, mentor, and leader. Victoria, welcome. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Before we go right in, I want to let you know you can find out more about Victoria on our website, please visit www.defyexpectations.co.uk for all of this great information. At Defy Expectations, we know that our life experience shapes us into the leaders that we become. So Victoria, how did your experiences shape you to lead others? I, quite honestly, Vicky, I'm not sure that I would say that I knew until later how much they truly shaped me. But I often speak now about the adversity that I overcame as a big part of my why. Understanding my lived experience is what has driven me to be incredibly focused on achieving more from a career perspective and now subsequently having much more of a legacy or impact. And that sort of origin story, if you will, comes from being born to a drug addicted teenage mother who was exceptionally abusive to me was in and out of, of, of care until I was ultimately removed from her care by a couple who she happened to know, actually. So one of the selfless things, most selfless things she could have done was actually to agree to give me up for adoption. But those very early years of abuse and then ultimately feeling rejected, one initially built incredible walls for me. So that protected me. So that's allowed me to do a lot of the things I've done and have this kind of tough exterior, although I'm still actually all marshmallow inside. Uh, but it was that that propelled me forward, coupled with the fact that my adoptive parents were loving, never any abuse. My mother in particular was an amazing woman who helped me understand a lot of the feelings I had, but lower from a socioeconomic standpoint. So when I was probably 11 years old, I remember my mom saying to me, Tori, you need to do better than us. And she meant by education and vocationally. But she had, didn't need to say those because to your question, I was determined to be better than biology or the circumstance with which I was raised in. And that is my why. And that is what has driven me forward. When we talk to a lot of leaders, and actually, if you look at a lot of leaders' stories out there, there is a huge amount of trauma that makes great leaders really great servant leaders. And I think from that and making sure that we're not passing that on and that we can role model different ways of being is critically important. Thank you for sharing so openly. You're so right. it's sort of a slightly twist on the conversation from being really open about what shaped you into actually how you define one of the things we talk about defies the criticality of language and understanding what we all mean by these certain words that are used all over the place. But how do you define resilience? And based on that definition, how do you help people build it themselves without having gone through a percentage of anything that you've gone through in your life? 
I think much like Helen, as you say, language matters. And I think resilience can mean very broadly something, but I think there's nuances to it. And, and I actually refer to it as a healthy level of resilience. So, I mean, I think resilience is about being able to withstand a lot of challenge, of obstacles. It might be trauma or some other kind of adversity. But the healthy part of it is where I, I think it's important to focus on because I think you can be resilient, but by never actually dealing with what's occurred to you, being really great at compartmentalizing and putting it to the side and then just moving forward. And then I think actually at some point for many, many people, they break as a result of that kind of resilience. And so the healthy kind of resilience is in my, and this has been my experience. And I think for, for me, I would actually say my resilience is a little bit DNA and a little bit that sort of trained muscle as well. And so fight or flight, I'm a fighter. So that's the DNA. But then learning how to be much more resilient includes, um, for me, it means actually allowing myself to have the emotion. Maybe not always in the moment when it's in a professional setting, I sometimes need to park it. But later, being able to have the emotion, whether it's anger, it's sadness, it's fear, whatever the emotion is, and then spend time being incredibly self-reflective, self-aware, processing through the emotions and the triggers. So for me, you know, I, my early, I didn't always have that healthy level of resilience. I was very good at building these walls. I compartmentalized. They didn't process. And you know, so for, you know, for me, I needed to understand when I was triggered by something, what was it? And so for me, fear of rejection was a big one. So not leaning in, doing some things that made me uncomfortable because I was fear, you know, feared, fearful of being told no, or that I'd be rejected, you know, period. So learning how to be really self-aware and think and understand why we have these emotions, why do we act out in the way we do? And then the next step is, I think, modeling the thinking the actions, the language, the behaviors until at some point it actually becomes much more natural. Uh, and then also giving us ourselves permission to fail. And then when we do pick ourselves back up and I always have an anchor point of whatever the goal or objective is or whether it's, you know, a personal improvement for people, whether it's losing weight, you want to get to a better mental state, you want to sleep better or whether it's like a professional goal, anchor back to that but then continue to, you know, iterate and go through that process to be more resilient. Victoria, you've been very open and honest with us in this conversation. I hope that continues as we go through this. The subject of resilience is so often spoken about, and, and at times the word resilience is used as almost one of those corporate bingo words. I've heard it spoken about as the thing people must do to go and be better. And often it's that band-aid of go do an online course for 30 minutes and you'll be absolutely fine. So it's wonderful to have these kind of conversations and bring in your very honest, very experiential background to be able to put context to this. So with that in mind, um, why would you say resilience is going to be such a key factor when we talk about the future of work and what might that look like? Because it's forever changed and will continue to rapidly evolve at a pace unlike no other. So I think the pandemic certainly taught us that the resilience we had to have in this sort of hustle hard nation of all business all the time now entered into our homes and our physical spaces. The people around us were, were impacted. And I think that with even just quite frankly, the digital transformation that's occurred and all companies, whether they're formally in technology or not, 
are now technology companies as a result of the digital means by which we manage our business internally or directly support our customers. And therefore, the evolution of skills and how quickly and rapidly those skills are going to need to change is technology. And then what gets left behind as more and more gets automated, there's always going to be a need for people in business. So I don't think we need to worry about that. But where the people in the business focus their time is going to change. And so as individuals, the need to be resilient in adapting to new technology, to new ways of working is going to test for many people who aren't comfortable with the pace of change or many who just resist it, period. That is the future of work. I mean, it's here now. It's here to stay. And so we're really going to need to learn how to address that, not only as individuals, but then I think those of us who are in leadership positions, learning how to be more effective at guiding, coaching people through this change. And to your point, that's not just going to be a 30-minute video that we can take from our desks. That's going to involve a lot of different ways of leading, of engaging with others, and even personal development improvement for everyone in the organization. I just wanted to add another question, actually. You've prompted a thought. And I think quite often when you talk about your experiences and you put that in the context of resilience, I'm sure there must be times when you have conversations with others who talk about resilience, but with a shred of some of the experiences that life may have thrown you or others. How do you navigate those kind of conversations by sort of staying true to your beliefs, but using your experience to help others, albeit that maybe their circumstances are not quite as extreme or severe, or they haven't experienced quite the depth that you have? First of all, a big part of being an authentic, human-centered leader myself personally meant that at some point I needed to open myself up to share my own story. So although I share pretty openly with you here and with your listening audience, I'll tell you that 10 years ago or so, I probably wouldn't have done it as openly. And quite, quite honestly, what I realized, Vicky, is I was doing a disservice to the people I was coaching and mentoring by not sharing. So everyone wanted to know how did I achieve the career levels and success that I had, but without sharing my why and my drive and the lived experience I'd had, it made it hard for them to understand and how to bridge that gap. So that's one way I've chosen to do it. But in others, it's also learning to be a really good storyteller. And I don't mean that in the way in terms of any kind of falsity or falsehood. But much like when I coach people who are applying for a job, you need to build a bridge, build the story around, you know, your experience and how it's relevant in this new environment. So my lived experience is, yes, very, very traumatic. But there's other challenges people have faced. And so a big part of my role is having this kind of conversation and helping them understand that they too have had some kind of adversity, even those born with a silver spoon in their mouths and maybe not having to overcome. There's levels of adversity that they've had to deal with and trying to build the bridge for them. And so that's how I've chosen to do it for those who didn't necessarily have the same kind of traumatic lived experience to get them to the table and understand we're much more alike than not and how they can potentially utilize some of the skills that I've developed in how they move forward. You spoke about the rapid rate of change that is happening within the workplace, and that's not going to slow down. But we also know that building self-awareness 
self-reflection, understanding all your triggers, that takes time. How as a leader can you balance moving the organization as quickly and as readily as you need to, as well as allow your people to have the space, and we also all know everybody's individual and different, to have the space to recognize that their behaviors are being driven by their triggers, to increase that self-awareness in a way that doesn't either lose the importance of managing people through that rate of change or fail to be as adaptive as you needed to the market. It's tough. And I think you know, no one said being an easy leader was easy. <laughs> I think it's actually become more challenging. And so for my approach to this is, first of all, I've always trusted my teams. I have a, the same with my team. Pre-pandemic and working from home, it was there are no schedules. They're just deliverables. So giving people the time and space to deliver against the expectations. But that also means being very clear. What does success look like in this organization to one another, to our customers, to ourselves, and then helping support them as a leader where there might be skill gap. I'm a big believer that we look at potential in people as well. And my role as a leader is to bridge the gap in where they might be lacking some skills or experience. But then, so my role as a leader, once I'm exceptionally clear around what the deliverable is, what success looks like and providing them the coaching and the tools is to certainly trust them in that. I think that's more, more and more important now in building that kind of engagement with our team. But then my approach to leadership is different for each of those individuals. Like you said, Helen, not everyone deals with change in the same way. Not everyone learns at the same pace. Not everyone performs at the same pace or quality. And so I need to adapt my leadership style to each of the individuals on my team. And so I've always been committed to having regular one-on-ones booked in the calendar. And yes, they might flex based upon various needs, but they're there and they're set. All the people know they can come to me anytime. But that's the opportunity where I sit and have a conversation. Yes, we're going to talk about performance or upcoming objectives, but I've, I've learned and I wasn't always like this. I used to be all business all the time, a little bit of fear to show my emotions and my vulnerabilities. So I wouldn't have been as open as I am now with my team, but really getting to know them, understand them, what motivates and what drives them in those conversations and asking some of the really difficult questions that they sometimes might not want to hear. And if you Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor, also sometimes giving them that very direct, you know, from a place of care and compassion to help them flourish. So my unique style varies person to person, always with general and macro similarities in terms of how I approach people and how I would want to lead them. But the conversation and what fuels them is going to be very different. So we've spoken a little bit about your background and how important it is to get different views and different people have been through different experiences. This, I think, is quite a tangential, but there is a segue there into talking about diverse, equitable and inclusive organizations. How can you help people create those? Because one of the risks that we've seen in, I mean, we saw it in the 90s in Europe where Norway put a quota on women in boards, put huge amounts of women into boardrooms, absolutely brilliant, but didn't necessarily have the right women with the experience that was needed to actually deliver on the requirements of a non-executive director role, for example. How can you create those 
DEI organizations in a way that really does allow for everybody to pay for their strengths and bring their perspectives in a way that drives learning and understanding across an organization. I talk a lot about strategic intentionality is what's critically important. And, and by that, I mean, there's the strategy behind developing the diverse workforce, let's say. That means understanding the baseline from where you sit. And so that's actually a big part of it, which is a challenge because as we're talking about lived experience, that's just, that's one component of diversity. There's diversity that we all see and talk about, as you just said, Helen, around gender, but race or ethnicity, sexual preference, all of these. But then there's all the the invisible ones we don't see, whether that's individuals' abilities or in this case, lived experience. So I think it's really important to recognize the intersectionality of diversity. And we all have a multitude of diverse pieces that come together and intersect. And so understand our baselines, but that requires self-identification for many of those other elements. In most countries, the only thing we can measure easily without people opting to self-ID is gender. Uh, So just understand the place from which you're at. The intentionality is where do I want to move the needle forward to, much like you said, Norway. I mean, we want to get to gender parity. Okay, great. But by what date? But it's more than that as well. And to your point over having the right people at the table with the right skills. I spent a lot of time with C-suite executives as part of my day job, if you will, coaching them through some of these pieces. There does not need to be a trade-off for business performance to have a diverse workforce. But the intentionality comes with not only who are you recruiting, And how does that align to skills? So a really good example, Helen, you were talking about from a board perspective, is you develop a board matrix based upon whatever business that company or not-for-profit is involved in, you're going to need a certain type of skills. And so identifying the skills and then aligning that with the diversity and making sure that the matrix is matched with skills and diversity for those who all sit around the either literal or virtual boardroom table. But what's also incredibly important is the inclusivity piece. So that's creating a sense of belonging within organizations where people feel that they can show up their whole selves. Because what I see is there's a lot of focus on the front door, bringing diverse talent in the front, but doing nothing in the middle. So they're all running out the back door because we haven't created the kind of policies and procedures or the environment within that makes this feel like a great place to work and thrive and be heavily engaged. And so we're losing them out the back door. So I think a lot of people are looking for like, what's the magic bullet to create this like DEI organization? And there isn't one because it's so multifaceted, which is why you need, um, I'll say a, a program around it. But we've seen, you know, chief diversity officers as one of the most posted roles over the last number of years, but we all own it. We all own it um, within the organization. I wanted to ask you another question on this subject, and actually, Victoria, if, if that's okay. But I think what you speak about is just to coin that phrase, to create that holistic program. And when you talked earlier about finding measures, finding metrics, I'm just interested in your perspective on intergenerational diversity, because I think it's something that is, is an interesting subject to me. I've been speaking about it quite a bit in some of the conferences I've been at and with other people that I see as influencers. But this idea that, particularly from a mentoring perspective, that the richness that can be had from the 
from the mentoring, from the inspiration between a 60 plus uh, and a 22 year old or a late twenties. And I think that's really lost in organizations. So the question is to what degree do you see that and see opportunity for it in the coaching you're doing with C-suite? Oh, well, that, that is one of the key points we need to be looking at when we talk about the diversity of our workforce. And so generational experience was one element of that we need to be looking at. Right now, I'm living in the U.S. and there's so, so, so many layoffs that have occurred. And a big part of where I'm you know, coaching people is to be exceptionally mindful as we look at the workforce. In the past, it's been last in, first out. Uh, and so actually, I think we're going to turn back the dial substantially on a lot of the diversity efforts we've made. So that doesn't necessarily speak to the generational piece. But again, it's going back to balancing this. Much like with Helen, we're talking about the skills matrix. You need to balance that. And one of the other things we need to look at is institutional knowledge as well. So how do you retain new talent who come into the organization with innovation and new ways of thinking and this other element of diversity with people who have significant experience and institutional or industry knowledge? And how do you create this balance between? It makes it really, really tough, quite quite honestly, for the HR leaders who are guiding the business leaders on how to do that. It's exceptionally complex. Thank you, Victoria. At Defy Expectations, we have a play on words, this whole idea of being defiant and it's okay to be a defiant. And one of the questions that we ask our guests is for each of you to share or pay forward a pearl of defiant wisdom. So something that you would want to pay forward that maybe you're a little bit maverick about or you sort of push the envelope a bit and paying forward that to younger individuals who have aspirations about leadership. Uh, it's a pearl, although I, I'll feel bad sharing it because it's not mine, but I have this quote of mine by Anne Rand, which is a question isn't who is going to let me, it is who is going to stop me. And that's me. I'm a bit of the bull in the china shop. And so I've had to be really mindful. Some of that's, again, my own nature and DNA. And so reining myself in at times in the appropriate settings for that, there is a hierarchy for a reason as well. But when I... You know, spend time with coaching people. I mean, I tell them you are the CEO of brand you. When I say brand, that's not only your personal brand and curating that and the legacy and what do you want to be known for, but also taking charge of your career. You don't think that your great work is going to speak for itself. It's making sure that you're building a strong network with others who maybe you don't naturally engage with so they understand more about who you are and what your aspirations are. And I hate that this goes a little bit back to that last question, even sort of the, so the mix between generations of the, well, this is the way we've always done it with new ways of thinking and why we want to see this balance. I'm the type who likes to break things just to put them all back together again. And so I tell your listeners, you're the CEO of you. You understand what your goals and objectives are. I tell my kids this, like you will define your own level of success. It's not defined by mine or my expectations of that. And so I tell your listeners that you're the CEO of you and don't let anyone stop you or define how narrow you might achieve from a career or life perspective. You absolutely open the aperture as wide as you want it to be. That's an awesome piece of advice, Victoria, because going back right to the very beginning of our conversation, resilience, I think the thing that breaks resilience for loads of people is the expectations of what success means by other people's standards. 
And that has just been amplified through social media in the last couple of decades. Really understanding what success means for me and what success means for me now is a really interesting way and a huge pearl of wisdom to pass forward. So thank you very much for sharing. Thanks for having me. One of the other things that, that really resonated with me is when you, it was just one reference and it was a reference to radical candor. And I think it's really important because we also have to look at that through the lens of different cultures and particularly from an international perspective and when we operate in Europe. I live in the Netherlands. And I think what's equally as important is to understand how to adopt that radical candor if the nation already exists by radical candor. So by that Dutch cultural lens is to be incredibly direct. So where does that resonate or not resonate? Does it have any sound? Does it have anything significant? So it just really was a great reminder for me to kind of use that where it will have resonance. Otherwise, it feels quite toothless and quite empty as well. But it's a great one to, to be able to pull that out and use it. That was just one of the things that you really made me think about. You've given me a lot of inspiration. I'm writing some material at the moment for a workshop, and I may well find I am proudly recycling some of the phrases, some of the sound bites that you've shared with us here today. So thank you in advance for that. And I did just want to say as well to those listeners who have joined into this session and have been equally as inspired by Victoria's story as we have been, please check back in again as we'll be running these sessions regularly and we cover every aspect, the kind of skills, the behaviors, the mindset, the language. Victoria, you mentioned that language is everything. All of these kind of things that leaders need to continuously develop and evolve to thrive. Do look at our website, defyexpectations.co.uk, and remember to follow us to get notified of our next episode.